Welcome to In My Backyard, an open conversation about children and mental health. We all know a child who's struggling, whether that child tells us or not. In this podcast, we speak with experts on the many factors of emotional distress in children, how to address those factors, and how to create a community where all children can be healthy and happy. This podcast is made possible through generous donations from supporters and listeners like you. Please visit tgclb.org or text HOPE to 562-262-5689 to make a one-time donation or join our Hope and Healing Club to become a monthly donor today. Your host is Trisha Costales, CEO of the Guidance Center, a nonprofit children's mental health agency in Long Beach, California. I'm Trisha Costales, your host of In My Backyard. I'm a licensed clinical social worker and the chief executive officer of the Guidance Center, a nonprofit children's mental health agency serving 3,500 children and families every year. In this episode, we're going to talk about an area of mental health that has gotten increasing levels of attention over the past decade. That is mental health diagnosing and treatment of very young children aged birth to five. Talk about mental health in very young children is often met with skepticism. As Dr. Sosofsky and Lieberman write, there is a pervasive but mistaken impression that young children do not develop mental health problems and are immune to the effects of early adversity and trauma because they are inherently resilient and grow out of behavioral problems and emotional difficulties. Doctors Tronic and Beagley go further, explaining that the false assumption is that infants and toddlers can't have mental health problems because they lack mental life. In reality, we know this isn't true. According to Dr. Steigar and Zadroga of the Mayo Clinic, many mental health concerns have roots traceable to challenges occurring in infancy and early childhood. And early interventions for these developing minds are necessary to prevent future mental health disorders. Briefs from the Harvard University Center on the Developing Child explain, our genes contain certain instructions that tell our bodies how to work but the environment leaves a signature on the genes that authorizes or prevents those instructions from being carried out, or even speeds up or slows down genetic activity. Thus, the interaction between genetic predispositions and sustained stress-inducing experiences early in life can lay an unstable foundation for mental health that endures well into adult years. There is an analogy they write to a table set on an uneven floor with misaligned legs or an uneven tabletop. We all understand that that table will be wobbly, but what can happen in the life of a very young child that is akin to misaligned table legs or an uneven floor? It is impossible to separate early experiences of young children from the context of their family home and their neighborhoods. And for many, those environments aren't ideal. As context, The U.S. Department of Health and Human Services reports that 80% of the children who die from abuse and neglect were younger than four years of age. Tragically, the first year of life is the most fraught with danger for many. While those cases may be extreme, a Harvard University Center on the Developing Child Brief reads, life circumstances associated with family stress, such as persistent poverty, 
threatening neighborhoods and very poor childcare conditions elevate the risk of serious mental health problems. Young children who experience recurrent abuse or chronic neglect, domestic violence or parental mental health or substance abuse problems are particularly vulnerable. Today, we have the great pleasure of speaking with two guidance center clinicians who specialize in the assessment and treatment of young children aged birth to five. Megan Bunting is a licensed clinical social worker at the Guidance Center's Long Beach Outpatient Clinic. Sophia Tormo is a licensed marriage and family therapist treating children at the Guidance Center's Educare Collaboration, an early education Head Start program. Welcome, Megan and Sophia. It's such a pleasure to have both of you here today. For the benefit of our listeners who have not met you, will you please say a few words about yourselves? Yeah. Hi. Um, thank you, Tricia, for having me. I'm Sophia Tormo. I've been with the Guidance Center for two years now, and I've been working in community mental health for six years now. And um, I can say I've had a specific interest in birth to five since my first internship. Um, and I know that comes from my own personal experience. I'm a mom and my daughter was eight months old when I first went into grad school. So on my own, I was reading all the parenting books and learning about brain development and child development and um, just became really fascinated with it all. And it, and it really just developed into a passion. Well, that's really wonderful. Thank you for sharing that. I didn't know that about you. That's very cool. Thank you. Yeah. How about you, Megan? Well, thanks for having me, Tricia. Um, my name is Megan Bunting, and I'm a licensed clinical social worker. I've been at the Guidance Center for almost four years, and I've just always loved working with kids. I'm super passionate about working with the zero to five population because they're just such a vulnerable group, and these foundational years are so important to how their lives will eventually unfold. And I was also born and raised in North Long Beach. So it just feels really meaningful to me to be able to give back and work in these communities that I know really well. Thank you to both of you. I've, I've learned something new about you both today. I appreciate that. You know, I'm going to jump right in. And, you know, I too am a mom, although my sons are now 19 and in college, but I can't talk about early childhood mental health without thinking about my own twin sons and, you know, how much I fretted when they were young about, you know, just making sure everything was set up in their world to ensure a healthy development, healthy brain development, everything. Mm -hmm. Could one of you please talk to us about the factors in a young child's environment that might negatively impact their emotional and mental health growth? Yeah, so there are several factors that we see that can negatively impact a, a child's development. I think the one that I work with the most is domestic violence. Um, but we also see how community violence, um, physical abuse, um, parental substance abuse, um, how that can have an impact on a child's development. Um, another one that I work with a lot is um, disruption in caregiving. So this could be um, a child who's had multiple caregivers um, because they're in the foster care system um, or divorce, or even if a parent is incarcerated. Um, we also see how parental mental illness can affect development, um, exposure in, in utero to um, drugs or alcohol, poverty, and overall, um, uh, parental 
uh, stress, which we've seen an increase in over the past two years with the pandemic. Absolutely. No question about that. I mean, it, it feels like there's such a wide range of things. I mean, from parental stress, which we all, of course, experience in varying degrees, poverty all the way to abuse. That's such a wide range of threats, actually, to um, these very young children. And I'd like to talk a little bit or get some explanation as to how. And let me give you sort of a a story from my clinical experience. I was um, doing, early in my career, I was doing uh, some domestic violence uh, parent education groups with the batterers actually. And, and they were all fathers of very, very young children, infants. And I was talking to them about um, how their domestic violence was impacting their, their child's future, their child's well-being. And they really scoffed at me because like they're infants, like they don't know what's mm-hmm. going on. How, how they're not aware they're babies. They're just sleeping in their crib. So explain. And of course I, I knew the, I knew answers to that, but could you please explain for our listeners how, who might have that same perception? These are just infants. How will they be in tune to these things? Explain how all of these factors could negatively impact a very young child. Yeah. I feel like I hear that a lot, um, that they're too young to understand or remember. And all the factors that Sophia mentioned too, they all impact a child's early development because they impact the child's brain and how it's actually forming. So a baby's brain doubles in size within the first year and then is 80% developed by age three and 90% developed by age five. So when a child is put in a stressful environment or its needs are not adequately met, the child's brain is actually being wired differently than a child's brain that is developing in a safe, predictable, calm environment. And the brain is creating millions of neural pathways that will later impact the child's ability to form relationships, social skills, um, the ability to regulate their emotions, and so on. So when a child is raised in a chaotic, stressful environment, we might see a bunch of symptoms like babies and toddlers not meeting their milestones, eating and sleeping difficulties, being difficult to soothe. Um, We also see delays in speech and cognitive functioning, like focusing and following directions. And then, of course, we also see more aggressive behaviors, anxious mood, depressed mood, too, even in the very little ones. Um, And something I think that's very important and probably surprising to a lot of people is that a child's first year of life is actually the most important in terms of predicting future outcomes for that child. So if a child has a nurturing, stable first year of life and then years of stress and trauma in toddlerhood, um, that child will actually fare better than a baby who experiences stress or trauma in that first year, and then subsequent years of peace and nurturing at home. And that's because of the importance of the brain growth and the brain development in that first year, Megan? Yeah, that's right. Because those neuropathways are um, being reinforced over and over. So if that's the basis of their brain development, that's what they're going to kind of be wired to expect or adapt to. That makes sense. So future future interactions then would are up against the barrier of having to, in effect, rewire a brain exactly. that has already been wired in a certain direction. Right. You know, 
and as I, I'd like to talk about attachment as well, because that's so important with little ones. And we hear that all the time. And as clinicians, we know what that means. And we know the how important it is in early life, especially. But could you explain for our listeners what is attachment and why that's so important? Yeah. So when we talk about attachment, we're referring to the bond between a child and their primary caregiver. And depending on the nature of that bond, whether it's a secure bond, whether it's an anxious bond or ambivalent or and so on, it has an impact on the way that the child um, understands themselves, um, under, um, it impacts their growth, it impacts the way they relate to um, others, and it even um, affects their future relationships. So um, I've heard it referred to as the blueprint for how a child perceives and values the reliability of relationships. Um, so for example, if a baby um, has a caregiver that attends to their needs, um, is consistent, um, soothes them when they're um, distressed, we can say that that baby has a model for a secure attachment. And when a baby has a model for a secure attachment, this allows for emotional regulation um, before a baby can self-regulate. So the, the relationship, the attachment with the caregiver takes the place of their emotional regulation until they develop those skills? Exactly. I mean, personalizing it, looking, remembering again, um, when my twins were babies, so careful to you know, it's the eye contact, it's yeah. talking to them, it's making sure that they're nurtured and that I'm responsive to them. Um, so it, it feels like disruption again can be, anyway, How besides violence or whatever else, how can it be disrupted? Um, so, you know, that's the question, you know, how can the secure attachment, um, you know, be disrupted? Um, using domestic violence as an example, let's say a young child lives in a home where there's a lot of um, parental conflict and, and dad hits mom. The child's expectations that their parents can protect them and keep them safe um, is, is probably not there. And they're most likely receiving messages in their developing brain that the world is not safe and that the people who are supposed to protect them and care for them um, could be scary or could possibly hurt them. So then um, we can imagine that that lack of security and safety could disrupt um, an attachment. We also know that um, there's other ways of attachment can be disrupted, and that's through abuse and neglect and um, repeated um, changes in primary caregiver, to name a few. Thank you. So, you know, getting the picture of how a young child might have mental health needs, how would we know? How would it manifest itself? You know, we're not, if we're talking about a one and a half year old, they're not going to come and tell you that they're sad per se. Mm -hmm. How on earth do you assess for mental health needs, especially in the really little ones? What do you look for? So as with all mental health issues, we're looking for symptoms and behaviors that cause a negative impact or impairment in the child's life. Um, we would assess for these behaviors by speaking with the adults in the child's life, like parents, teachers, daycare workers. Um, so an example for a really little one, like a seventh month old, for example, 
Um, we might see issues with poor appetite, separation anxiety, um, the caregiver's difficulty bonding with the baby. Um, on a little bit of the older side, maybe a four-year-old, we might see impairment at preschool, like biting other kids or mm -hmm. hour-long meltdowns or difficulty making friends. Um, and something else to keep in mind too is that a lot of these challenging behaviors can be considered normal too, as long as they're not causing the child or family too much distress or increasing the child's risk of abuse. Um, like one behavior I often hear about is biting and this really freaks the parents out, but it's actually pretty common up to about age four because children that young don't have the best communication skills. They don't have the impulse control or the frustration tolerance yet. So even if a child's behaviors are normal and age appropriate, um, if they are too overwhelming for the parent and that increases the chance that that parent will hurt the child or neglect the child, then that would definitely qualify that child for treatment. So you're assessing perhaps in the infant or child behavior that is sort of beyond what we might consider the norm, but you're also perhaps assessing the parental sort of internal resources to, to manage complicated little kid behavior because they, right. they are complicated and they're all over the place. And um, so you're, you're assessing the parent's sort of resiliency and coping and ability to manage it. You're assessing the parental and child relationship and you're assessing the child's behavior and a disruption in any of those things could lead to a need for treatment. I mean, I think so. And I think something that isn't maybe considered enough is parental depression um, mm -hmm. and anxiety. Because like earlier when you said that you made effort to make eye contact with your boys, if you are a depressed parent who's super stressed out and doesn't have the emotional capacity to even smile back at your child, that in and of itself is a disruption. And that um, lack of emotional intimacy and security, um, like Sophia was mentioning, that can be really terrifying for a kid. Um, so those are the things we assess. We assess the whole family unit. Yeah, that makes sense. But, you know, in the mental health system, treatment requires a diagnosis. <laughs> um, so talk to me about the implications of giving an infant or a toddler, perhaps, a mental health diagnosis. And also, how does that differ, perhaps, from diagnosing an older child? Yeah. Um, so with an older child, I mean, they can tell us a lot more. And we can um, gather a lot more information through their, their play. And if they're school age or in, their, in preschool, we can check in with the teacher and we can get information about um, what they're seeing in the classrooms. But with the baby, they can't talk. And so we're really relying on that parent report and looking for indicators that Megan talked about as far as their social, emotional, and um, cognitive development. But um, I think the important question becomes um, is, you know, what is a diagnosis? I know that um, a lot of the parents I work with worry about the stigma of a diagnosis. And I know that they have concerns about putting, you know, a quote unquote label on their child. And the way I like to explain it is that, um, you know, if you fall and break your arm and you go to the doctors, um, you know, you'll get a diagnosis of broken arm. And then based on that diagnosis, you'll be able to receive treatment. 
And so it's the same thing with the mental, hi- uh, mental health diagnosis. We see that there's something that's impacting, um, negatively impacting the child. And we see that, um, you know, if we can, um, you know, give a diagnosis that we can start to begin to provide treatment. And so this is where the conversation comes in as far as prevention and early intervention and letting parents know that, you know, if a broken arm is not adjusted or tended to, um, it's going to get worse or it's maybe going to heal in a way that doesn't support healthy development. And, And we don't want that to happen. So in mental health, we want to get in there and intervene as soon as possible to encourage that healthy um, emotional and um, social development. Um, but, you know, I do, I empathize with parents because um, I hear things from them like, you know, maybe this will just go away or um, uh, maybe they'll grow out of it or maybe they won't remember um, but I just share as much information as I can because I, I know the implications of, of not addressing these issues as early as possible can, can really have um, a negative impact on the child's development. Sure. And down the road, uh, mm-hmm. possibly more severe diagnoses and, and behaviors, et cetera. Dr. Steigar and Zadroga of the Mayo Clinic write that an infant's future ability to pay attention, adapt in flexible ways, learn in school and in life situations, make friends and manage unpleasant emotions such as anger or anxiety, all depend on early social emotional development and the connection of secure attachment that leads to the ability to trust in others and self. Effective mental health treatment for very young children, then, must involve the primary caregivers. Dr. Reem Shafi et al. write, rooted in attachment theory and further supported by the premise that the quality of the child caregiver dyad is paramount to psychological well-being, effective therapies focus on strengthening that relationship. Clinicians work with the caregivers to resolve barriers to positive and attentive parenting skills teach effective coping skills, and access community resources and support systems. Could you please describe for us how you would engage in treatment with a caregiver and a very small child? What work do you do to, I mean, it's been clear through our conversation that the parent-child relationship is really foundational here. So what work do you do to shore up that relationship? Yeah, so the specific interventions will look a little different depending on the child's age, but a concept that we're always keeping in mind is this idea of serve and return. So we can use tennis or volleyball as an analogy. Um, When you're playing volleyball, you serve the ball over the net, right? And then the other player returns the ball back to you. And this is really all it takes to start forming those bonds in early childhood. Like if you take a walk with your one-year-old and they gesture to you that they see a bird, And then maybe you say, oh, that's a bird. And you also look at that bird. You've just created a shared experience and that is bonding. So the child served you the ball by pointing at the bird and then you return the ball by responding and looking at it too. So it can be really simple. Um, In a therapy session with a really little one, like maybe a five month old, we might be just mirroring their coos and sounds or smiling back at them. We're also doing things like singing, reading, engaging all five senses, because again, we want to help form those neural pathways for connection and relationships. 
And we also want to make sure, of course, that they're reaching their cognitive milestones as well. Um, in toddlers, we're still doing those same attachment activities, those bonding activities, but maybe we're playing peekaboo or hide and seek or just playing with toys and teaching the parent how to play and connect. Um, I wanna to mention too that children use toys to show us how they're feeling. Um, they don't usually tell us with words like we kind of mentioned before. So it's really important to help the parent just kind of bear witness to their child's play and see what emotions come out. And sometimes it can be difficult to watch too, to be honest, because they will play mm -hmm. out abuse and those really strong feelings. And sometimes witnessing rage or fear um, or powerlessness can be triggering to the parent, but it's important that the child can get it out and process it. And it's also important for the parent to understand their child's experience, but also to increase their own tolerance for their mm -hmm. children's deep emotions. Can you explain or role play somehow what you mean by bear witness to their play? Yeah, so... I tell parents it's not your job to necessarily fix the emotion or to, you know, explain maybe the intention behind a kid's experience. It's really just to sit there with them and allow the child to feel however they want to feel and express it however they want to express it um, without trying to fix it, change it, um, and just kind of hear and see the their child um, mm -hmm. in whatever state they come. So in the playroom, that could look like, you know, maybe getting a doll figure and stabbing it to death. That could be really triggering for a parent to see. And they might, I feel like a, a common reaction, especially in the beginning of treatment is, oh, that's not nice. We don't do that. But in therapy, we do because it's their time to process. Um, or, you know, they might kind of show explicit abuse in different ways too. So just the parent kind of being a supportive, um, you know, just figure and just kind of letting the child do whatever they need to do. Mm -hmm. I remember the very first, when I was seeing clients, I generally had like the super oppositional teenagers. I remember the first toddler I ever got, a little girl who was almost three, um, and she came to me, she'd been sexually abused by a step grandparent and in sessions uh, with, and her mom was of course present. She had, there was this uh, toy she called a monster. She beat that monster up for weeks on end. She kicked that thing all over my office. She just yeah. was so angry at that monster. And it was really hard for mom to sit there and say, you know, reflect back yeah. while, you know, that monster did something really bad. You're really angry or, um, but in the end she was able to do that. And I remember thinking what a magical process this thing of play therapy is that, wow, it really does work. Look <laughs> at this. And one session, she just left the monster up on the shelf because yeah. she said she didn't need it anymore. And I'm like, this is amazing. Yeah. But I get what, like, it was really hard for mom to sit there through her anger. It was so painful, but that is what that little girl needed to do. Yeah. And I just want to say, Trisha, too, you bring up such a good point because as the trained clinician, you know, we know what to look for, for signs of healing and she healed, right? She processed and that was so symbolic that she left it because she was kind of done. 
and yeah, she processed what she needed to. Yeah. And yeah. I, I love that when I start to see signs of healing, I'm like, okay, we're almost there. Like the work has yeah. been done because I just want to say too, that so many parents in the beginning say things like, this isn't playtime. Like this is very serious. We're not here to play. And mm-hmm. it is the way that they do therapy. And like you said, it does work. It mm-hmm. is. Yeah. But you know, for so many of our parents, especially as you know, you've talked about what that early developmental, what those early developmental experiences do to the brain. Our parents didn't receive those positive early developmental experiences themselves, those ones that promote sound mental health. So how do you teach them those foundational attachment skills when they never were nurtured in that way? Mm -hmm. Their brain is wired differently. Yeah, I think the biggest way to teach them those foundational skills is um, through the therapeutic relationship. So it's my goal that when parents are meeting with me that they feel understood, they feel safe, they feel supported. Um, You know, I model those skills um, with the parent. I model, you know, reflective listening, empathy, um, even boundaries. Um, And in turn, they have a template to do the same with their child. Um, I also find that um, parents who did not get their needs met as a child um, they have difficulty even identifying what their needs are. And if they are able to identify them, they have a hard time um, communicating them. And so part of the work that I like to do with parents is to help them, um, you know, identify um, supportive relationships in their life. So, you know, is there a family member? Is there a friend? Is there someone in their parenting group or their church um, that they can rely on, that they can go to? And then we work to see how we can help help them um, get their emotional needs met through those supportive relationships in their life. Um, And then the other part of that work is also helping the parent to acknowledge, you know, which attachment needs were not met in their childhood. Um, And so having conversations about maybe how there was a lack of, um, um, a lack of attention or affection or even playtime. You know, I find that a lot of parents that I work with, they they did not get to play as a child or they, they don't know how to play um, with their child. And so when we start having these conversations about what their attachment needs are, I find that they start thinking about their own child and what their what their child might be needing. So the the therapeutic relationship isn't just curative for the child, it is for the parent as well. I, I believe so. That's pretty beautiful. Um, How much more complicated does this get when actual violence has taken place? You know, you think of a a depressed parent or a stressed out parent, um, stressed because of poverty, whatever else. A a disengaged or stressed parent or depressed parent is really different from a violent parent or a parent that is the victim of abuse. So how does that play out in treatment and do parents get or need individual work as well? Yeah, so violence and abuse come to light in a few different ways in therapy. Um, In some cases, the child will be referred to therapy um, after domestic violence occurs and treatment will focus on processing what the child experienced or witnessed. Um, Or they'll be in treatment for what seems like something else, like physical aggression or severe shyness, and then it will come out in treatment that they have experienced abuse or are currently experiencing abuse. 
If abuse has already occurred and the caregiver and I are aware of it, we'll use play therapy like we've been talking about in our sessions to help the child process those memories. Um, and even if the caregiver says, oh, they never saw anything, they just heard us fighting, um, well, that's still terrifying to a little kid and they need the safe space to play out their feelings of fear um, or their revenge fantasies. That's actually really common. When kids feel powerless in the moment, sometimes they say they want to, you know, hurt the guy who hurt mommy because they're trying to establish some sense of control over the situation. Um, and then if the abuse comes to light during treatment and one of the caregivers is the perpetrator, that gets a little more complicated because we would have to call um, the Department of Child and Family Services to inform them of the allegations. Um, and then they would determine whether abuse is actually taking place in the home. And I had a case like this where my client entered treatment at three years old with a severe speech delay um, and some anxiety symptoms. And it turned out there was active abuse going on in the home. So the stress of the home environment was actually delaying my client from meeting his milestones. And the speech was very delayed. He almost said nothing. And we had to find my client and his mom new housing arrangements because it just wasn't safe for them to stay there anymore. And luckily, this mom was open to her own therapy services, which I think helped a, a ton. And now my client is super chatty and outgoing, hmm. and they're both able to feel safe in their new home. So um, that turnaround was really great to see. Well, that's a great story. Thank you. Um, when, okay, there are caveats to this question. So give me a second to get it out. Uh, when the child is on the older side, I know we're talking about little ones, so mm -hmm. old is still young, but let's say two to five or three to five. Um, and you know that there's been uh, traumatic experiences. Do you do trauma work, specific trauma, trauma work with the child alongside the parent-child relationship work? And I know you could say, even doing all of those nurturing things with an infant is doing trauma work. But, you know, we talk so much in therapy about trauma narratives and need to process those experiences. Does that take place with these little ones as well? Um, I mean, my answer would be absolutely. I think Megan would agree with me that um, treatment can only go so far if we don't have parent participation um, in the trauma work. Um, provided that, you know, the caregiver is um, a safe, a safe person. Um, and I would say that the parent-child work is the preferred form of treatment when a child is, is this young. Um, and especially when we, we think about a disrupted attachment, I mean, the trauma shows up in the relationship, um, but then healing is also possible through the relationship. And so we need the parent there to, in order to be able to do that. Um, so I empower parents. I tell them, you know, how important they are um, in the in the whole therapeutic process and even outside of the therapeutic process. Right. Like I, I work with them and tell them I'm, I'm such a small part of their life. I meet with them for one hour a week. And, um, you know, the skills and the interventions that we work on, um, um, it's it's them showing up and doing that in session and then reinforcing that outside of session. That's going to have the biggest impact on, on their child's development. I just want to say that just as an aside for a lot of the parents we see hearing from their therapist, that they're doing a good job, that they're important. That's 
for a lot of them, probably the first time in their lives, they've gotten that kind of positive reinforcement. So I just want to reflect on how powerful that alone must be for a lot of our families. Mm -hmm. Um, Could one of you share perhaps a success story of your work with a very young child? Yeah, so I have a 16-month-old right now who started therapy um, because every time she got sad or was told no, she would throw herself backwards onto the ground. She would hit her head against the wall, even slap herself in the face over and over. So her mom needed some help learning new ways to help my client do what we call co-regulate. Co-regulate is just when a parent helps their child calm their nervous system so that the child doesn't feel the need to use those kinds of behaviors to express themselves. But while I was working with this family, the mom ended up opening up about her own depression and active plans for suicide. And I'm so glad that she did because we were able to help this mom get back into therapy and regulate her own emotions so she could be more emotionally available and present with my client. And now they're doing amazing. The mom hasn't had suicidal thoughts in months. Um, My client isn't hitting herself anymore. The mom is getting some of her confidence, that parent confidence back that she can handle my client's emotions. And, you know, she can keep my client safe at home, but also herself safe at home. That's that's a a beautiful story. Thank you. Sophia, do you have one you want to share? I know I'm putting you on the... (laughs) No. I didn't prep you for that one, but <laughs> I, I do, but it's with a three-year-old. That's okay. okay. They're still babies. Yeah. So, I mean, I was, I was working with a mom and um, her three-year-old son and they had just been reunified um, after the child had been in foster care for a period of time. Um, and this child was in foster care because of um, parental um, substance abuse and, and domestic violence. And um, this this mom was really overwhelmed with having her son back full time. And, um, the son had a lot of big behaviors and, um, you know, the more I worked with this family, um, mom confided in me that she was just feeling like, um, she couldn't discipline, um, because she didn't feel like she had the right to after, um, you know, what her son had been through. And so, um, there was a lot of feelings of guilt and, and shame, and um, it was through treatment that we were, I was able to share information about um, the importance of discipline and how um, children actually need that to feel safe. Um, and, you know, especially a child with trauma, how they respond really well to, um, you know, discipline and, and, and having limits. And, um, you know, in session, we started working on a, a strategy called Time In to help mom, um, you know, help herself and help, uh, help her son when, um, they were both really dysregulated. And, um, you know, through time I saw mom become more and more, um, confident in her parenting. And I saw, um, the child become, um, you know, feeling more and more safe in his relationship with mom. And then by the time treatment ended, mom was felt very capable to, um, to handle the behaviors. And it was, it was a cool thing to watch. That's a great story. Thank you. You know, as always, I end all of these conversations on a note of hope. And I want to say you guys work with these very cute little ones. You have triggered every one of my buttons of wanting to snuggle a baby right now through this entire conversation. Um, You know, these little ones that we just want to take home and cuddle and, you know, these parents themselves struggle so much. We see the intergenerational issues 
what gives you hope to continue doing this work day in and day out? What are the bright sides for each of you? So there is just so much hope for these little ones and their families. Um, for one, they're in treatment when we see them. So that's the first step to changing those intergenerational patterns that you mentioned. And also the concepts reviewed in treatment with these little ones can be implemented at every age going forward. Mm -hmm. So things that we've talked about today, like spending quality time together, validating their feelings instead of being dismissive, creating a safe and predictable home environment, all the things we talked about, they're all tools that the caregivers can use, whether their child is two years old, 12 years old, or 20 years old. Um, and I also think prevention is crucial in mental health. So the sooner we can start improving these bonds and teaching these skills, the better off the whole family really is going to be. Yeah. Thank you. How about you? Yeah, for me, what gives me hope is the success I've seen with the families that I work with. Um, there are intergenerational issues, um, but most parents want to do better um, for their children um, than what was done for them. And they really want the best for them, but sometimes they just don't know how. So the bright side is um, seeing parents try and seeing them show up um, for their children and try to do better. Um, another bright side is seeing a parent uh, rediscover the joy of parenting. Mm -hmm. I work with parents who have like really stressful things going on and, and parenting becomes just one more stress. Um, but we find ways in therapy, in therapy and outside of therapy um, for them to have fun with their children and to laugh with their children and, um, you know, just show that, um, you know, a parent and child can have joy in their relationship. So that's my bright side. Oh. Well, that's a, that's a beautiful bright side. Thank you. Thank you so much to both of you for joining us in this conversation. You work with our most vulnerable children and that's really important. So I thank you for the incredible work you do. And I thank you for inspiring us today. Thanks, Trisha. Yeah. Thanks for having us. It's my position that by shining a light on these issues, admitting that they are in our own backyards, it will be easier for a struggling child to get some help. Ideally, we can all begin to be kinder and more supportive of each other. In My Backyard is brought to you by The Guidance Center, a children's mental health agency in Long Beach, California. In My Backyard is produced by Trisha Costales and Matthew Murray. Thank you to J. Vincent B. for original music. All other music licensed through Soundstripe. Thank you to our listeners and supporters. Please visit tgclb.org or text HOPE to 562-262-5689 to make a one-time donation or join our Hope and Healing Club to become a monthly donor today. Subscribe to In My Backyard on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.